Does anyone here raise the chickens? So we have quite an exciting event. So So we have quite an exciting event this evening. We have Poetry night rings through. Uh, let's put our hands together for Joseph, no nickname he hates, Green. Thanks for the interview and introduction, Tom. And thank you for all coming out tonight. Uh, blowy night, cold night. Good to see some faces here. So uh, I'll start with a little anecdote, a Bellingham anecdote. I used to work at Western in the uh, Ed Media Center. as I was the, the film clerk there. And uh, my job, the, the film library at Western was very small, and my, my, uh, my job was to locate films that were going to be used in classrooms uh, anywhere in the country not used in classrooms anywhere in the country, films anywhere in the country that would be used in classrooms at Western and, and rent them for, uh, for educational use. I had a, a budget that I had to kind of guard, and so I'd gotten to where, calling long distance, I'd, I'd get this little spiel. I'd say, hi, my name's Joe Green. I'm calling from Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. I'd like to talk to you about renting a film. So I, Pittsburgh, Pitt, University of Pittsburgh had, had a great film library, and I called there uh, several times. And, and on one occasion, about this time of year, I I called Pitt and uh, I said, "Hi, my name is Joe Green," and I I got this shriek on the other end of the line before I ever got to the part about Western. Not me, Joe Green of the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> I mean, you could have heard that woman. It, I had the earpiece up here, and you could have probably heard her. Out of, out of the other ear, clear across the room. Pittsburgh, what can I say? Okay, poetry. I want to start with a poem by William Stafford. This is called Meditation. With things going on in the world recently, I think it's very appropriate. Meditation. Animals full of light walk through the forest towards someone aiming a gun loaded with darkness. That's the world, God holding still, letting it happen again and again and again. William Stafford. Can you all hear me all right? Is this good? All right, I'm not going to touch it then. Just make it worse. I was very lucky this last summer to have... Um, two poems read on Garrison Keillor's uh, Writer's Almanac. And so I'm going to read those to you. The first one is called 
the business of crows. So this is for Tom's crow fetish girlfriend. The business of crows. One of them has a discarded half-pint milk carton by its pinched top and is banging it on the sidewalk, hopping with it, dragging it along. He hefts it with his beak and swings it against the concrete. Then he pauses to inspect his work, to adjust his grip before picking up the carton and smacking it down again. Every time he hits the sidewalk with the empty box, it makes a flat, satisfying plop. Perhaps that's all the crow wants, the hollow report he gets for his labor confirming its emptiness. As for me, I have stopped on the way back to my office to watch a crow's involvement with a milk carton. Sunlight filtering through bare trees stains the bird a dark blue that slips to black like secret ink and makes sense only as his feathers move. What could possibly be more important than this? I have no further excuses. A friend of mine, uh, after Garrison Keillor read that, a friend of mine sent me a, an email and said, what are bear trees, B-E-A-R? Okay. Is that your new book? Yeah. Um, this, the other poem that Garrison Keillor read comes from a series, uh, I've got it as a section in, in this book called The Seven Pools. And I'll read you a couple of those poems, but I'll read you the, the one that he read first. This is called The First Day. Saturday morning, the pool fills with children. Their parents want them to learn something preposterous, not just to tread water, but to move through it as easily as they run at home from one room to another. Naturally, the miracle of flotation escapes some of them. However, the believers, buoyant in their faith, hold their breath and push away from the side. Face down, arms outstretched, these blessed ones glide like angels in a fleeting state of grace, then pop up grinning when they run out of air. Splashed with success, they hug themselves happily in the blue-lipped chill. Meanwhile, the few still clinging to the wall watch their own number shrink, small, miserable, suspicious of their parents for making them suffer here. They begin to see the arrangement of things, how easily everyone can turn away from them when they don't give in, how lonely a personal conviction is. Thank you. This little guy on the on the front of the book, I don't know if you can see him from back there, but this is, is my uh, grandson, and he's uh, he's 19 months old now. But he was only about five months old when this picture was taken. He was under He's being taken underwater in a water baby's swimming class, which he loves, loved. I guess he's still swimming, though, right? Still loves it. He's quite, quite the little fish. Anyway, not all kids take to it like that. So this is called Water Babies. 
I don't know if you know about water babies. But the, 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 you, t- you teach a child to, to a little, like an infant, to swim by taking the, the baby underwater. And the way you get them to, I don't know if they still do it like this, but the, the way that when I took my son through water babies, the way you do it would be to blow in the baby's face. You go, and the baby would go like that. You know, learn to kind of, and so then you pull them underwater. And then you pull them back up out of the water, of course, you know, and anyway, okay. Water babies. What do the babies think as they go under? Their mothers, who would surely walk across the surface of the pool to save them, now smile and coo and dunk them. When the babies come up sputtering, their mothers give them wet kisses hug them soothingly, and dunk them again. Some of the babies laugh and splash, and some stare up in quiet astonishment, but most of them struggle, pumping their legs the way frogs do, trying to jump. The cries that fly from their wide mouths bounce off the ceiling and fall in a shattered chorus back to the water. The mothers just want their babies to grow up safely. They wrap them in towels, cuddle them. But the babies are learning to hold their breath as if they might have seen the way their mothers smiled as they pulled them down beneath the surface of their first betrayal. See, having done that to my own son, I, I, I have license. Okay, there's seven po- poems in the Pool series. I've never read this one in public. This is the last poem in the series. It involves uh, David Hockney's pool paintings. Are you familiar with his, David Hockney the painter? He's, look him up if, you, if you're not familiar with him. If you are, you'll know what I'm writing about here. <coughs> it can be anything, which is actually a, a kind of a paraphrase of something Hockney says about water. It can be anything. What you see in David Hockney's pools is the water, rarely the light reflected from it on a window or wall. Even when light throws a net over it, the reticulated water moves while the world around it holds still. A boxy California house, two ridiculous spindly palms, a diving board rigid as a plank beneath a flat blue sky, or the painter himself tilting forward in his peach blazer and white slacks, his expensive loafers, stiffly contemplating the man who swims toward him underwater. Or else there's a splash, the instant when someone disappears, and what you see is the water leaping as if it were receiving a gift. I have no no idea what Hockney intended. The problem is always the water, because it can be anything or nothing, like air contained where he painted it, the abstract in the concrete, the feeling in a hole in the ground as water fills it, maybe seeping unobserved into a grave after the mourners have all gone away. Have I ever told you why I left Los Angeles? Now you can see why I'd never read that before. 
um, three years ago now, my wife and I were in Morocco, and uh, we were there for almost a year. Uh, she had a teaching fellowship, and I had nothing to do but write poems and walk around and meet people and talk and meet people, and it was great. One day I was sitting in our apartment. We had a, a, a third-floor apartment in, in the, the Nouvelle-Ville in Marrakesh, and uh, uh, the school that she was teaching at paid for it. Otherwise, we might have lived someplace else. But there were all these little businesses down below us where you could get anything you needed within a block of our, of our apartment. It was really cool, really great neighborhood. And... Uh, I, it was very hot one afternoon. I was sitting in there writing, and I had the door open onto our little veranda. And I heard uh, someone with an, an electric power saw, a, a circular saw. And the saw was binding up. And if you've worked with wood, you know that sound. It goes, you know. So I heard that. Now, all of a sudden, I wasn't in Morocco anymore. This poem is called Go Back, Go Back. Wine of my neighbor's power saw, cutting, binding a little, bogging down, then biting in again. I can almost smell the sawdust, pungent pine resin or dry walnut lingering, filling the shop. My uncle's voice rising with it from his absence, saying, Well, because he always started a sentence like an afterthought, maybe you better measure again. So I have to stop. Here comes the nagging blade of doubt, the same circular reason I've never been able to finish anything. So I will go back to the, book, the previous book. Both of these books were published by uh, um, Moonpath Press in Kingston, Washington. And uh, I have to say, uh, working with Lana Ayers, the uh, the publisher has just been a pure pleasure. She's just uh, terrific. I can't say anything less than that. She's just wonderful. Um, so I'm going to read a few poems out of this book. My granddad's last career. Not one of his wristwatches ever kept time after he'd fixed it, although he eventually did get one to tick its flat hands jerking like nerve damage, like delirium tremens around its white, innocent face. Granddad again. Someone to watch over me. Months after he died, excuse me, start that over. Someone to watch over me. Months after Granddad died, he still hung around in the hall outside my room, keeping an eye on me the way he'd always done. I accused him of spying when he was alive, when I caught him four or five times a day easing my door ajar and peering inside. Get, get your nose out of my business, I hissed, and the door sucked shut, and he slipped back down the hall. But then after he was gone, there was no more getting rid of him. My mother gave all his clothes away, the pinstriped suits, the hats, the underwear, and scrubbed the smoke stains out of his room and sold his bed, his dresser, and his easy chair. 
But I can still feel him sneaking up behind me, distracting me from my algebra, from the unknowns I had to isolate among the numbers I couldn't love. His breath whistling soft as cotton through his nostrils, the invisible gift of his attention lifting the hairs on the back of my neck. That was the winter I first sipped liquor and first sniffed a girl on my slippery finger. That was the winter I learned what it is to be haunted. I owe my dad for a lot of things, not the least of which, although maybe the most practical, um, was learning to to um, do plumbing with copper, sweat soldering copper, which is called sweating copper, and that's the name of the of the poem, sweating copper. My father taught me the hard way, dusty coveralls in the crawl space with the water off, and no matter what, we were stuck there until we finished up. Cobwebs strung the floor joists where I had to aim the trouble light and hold it still so he could see just what the hell was going on. If I let it slip, he grabbed my wrist and dragged the light back where he wanted it, above the tubing cutter and the emery cloth and the little metal-handled flux brush in the jar of flux. The solder wire coiled around itself the way I wrapped my thoughts on their hollow core. Then the quiet hiss of bottled gas, the flint scratch of the spark lighter, the blue tongue licking through the flame along the copper pipe to make the solder run bright as mercury into the fitted seam. Smell of cool dirt, smell of coffined air, smell of gas and flux and solder vapor piercing it all like my father's whisper, can't you pay attention maybe just for once? When I was in my early 20s, I'd grown my hair out pretty pretty long. I mean, it was past my shoulders and a bit down my back, and it was very curly, and uh, rode a motorcycle, and I had a full beard, not, not gray. And uh, I rode a motorcycle. When I... In my last couple of years of college, I lived uh, across town from my folks, and I would go see them on Sundays, you know, and, and uh, have a free dinner and, and so on. Well, my dad uh, was not happy with the way I looked and behaved and was sure I was doing things he didn't approve of. He was, he was right. And uh, so one day he met me at the door when I, when I came in, and this is a reconstruction of that greeting. It's called Jesus Charles Manson. (laughs) That hair, he said, that hair and that beard and that look in your eye, he said, 
and that hair and that trash on your tongue and that beard and those filthy jeans, he said. I wonder just what you think I see when I see you, he said, with that hair and that beard and that look in your eye and those filthy jeans and that trash on your tongue, he said. And by now he was shouting, that greasy hair and that beard and those filthy jeans. I mean, Jesus, he said. You look like Charles Manson with that greasy hair and that beard and that look in your eye and those trashy jeans and that filth on your tongue and that look and that trash and that filth and that hair and that beard and those jeans. I mean, Jesus, he said. I mean, Jesus. (laughs) We got better. This is called The Boats in the Harbor. Within an hour after I left her ICU bedside, my mother stopped breathing and her heart quit and the IV drip had nothing more to do and the monitor rang for room service and someone came to turn it off, but that was not me because I was eating breakfast in Trinidad at a restaurant overlooking the harbor where a fishing boat emerged from the fog like a dim thought forming itself into an idea. My father had said mom needed to rest after the operation and I should eat something before I started the long drive back north. He liked this restaurant. He was picking up the check. Neither of us would ever see my mother again after that, but we didn't know it at the time. Seagulls wheeled up from their sullen seagulls wheeled up from their sullen post- posture on the dock to greet the boat with a noisy chorus of sharp cries and squawks. Critics everywhere, I said, meaning the way the birds received this newly formed idea. But my father didn't get it. To him, the seagulls were simply hungry seagulls, and the boat was only a white trawler with a white with a wide blue stripe above the, br- the rub strake where the crew had hung a collection of bright orange fenders to take up the impact of coming home. Sorry, I stumbled over that so much. It's like once I started, I couldn't stop. You know? In the afterlife. Let your name be smoke. It will be smoke anyway soon enough. And after that, let your name be ash. Let wind spread your name. Let wind make you famous among the innumerable particles of dust. Then let rain come. Let rain turn your name to mud. Let mud be your name, like your mother said it would be if you didn't behave, if you didn't do what she said. Let her say this isn't exactly what she meant. This book is, uh, and both of these books actually, are pretty elegiac. There's, I've gotten to a, uh, an age where... Um, Losing people is a pretty common thread, I guess, you know. The tourists. 
Because it is a country most of us visit only rarely, we will never be fluent in the language of grief. We speak haltingly and often have to excuse ourselves, saying, sorry, sorry, what else can we do? Whenever we go there, although we know we've packed more than we need, we refuse to let anyone carry our luggage. In the streets, we clutch new souvenirs like wounds, as if letting go of them even briefly would ruin us. But no one else is going to want what we've bought. No one is going to pick our pockets. Wherever we walk, even crossing the piazza, we find ourselves alone, the architecture foreign, the buildings all painted the same conservative shades as the shirts of undertakers. We are always getting lost. And when we come back home again, none of our friends will ask to see our photographs. Instead, they'll want to try out the few clumsy words they can remember from their own trips across that border. This poem has an epigraph um, from um, Phil Borges, who's a photographer in Seattle. He's done a a lot of uh, work beyond this, but I I think he first became uh, really well known for a collection called Enduring Spirit, which was a collection of portraits of people in remote places around the globe. Uh, This epigraph is uh, about a woman named Inalia who's 50 years old and lives in Juwika, Irianjaya. And the quote is this, Like most women her age, she traditionally cuts off a finger each time a relative or or close friend dies. So this is little finger. I was the first to go, the runt of the left-hand litter, smallest of the lot but not not necessarily the least important or weakest. I was her booger hooker, her eye corner cleaner, the wax extractor for her left ear. I picked out secrets that I would never tell. You might have known me anywhere by my nail, my hook, my crooked knuckle before I fell. Who can say what the living will endure? I remember how, wringing a chicken's neck, I felt it give. I was a pioneer. I was the first to go. I know what it means to be lonely. Heart's Desire Maybe all it really wants is to be appreciated. Maybe it's just tired of keeping the beat. Ba-boom, ba-boom. If you had to do that, wouldn't you slip in a paradiddle? A couple of rim shots? Or maybe it's jealous, afraid you'll give it away. Possessive, clinging, squeezing so hard you can't breathe. It's murmuring, baby, baby, wherever I go, you know I'm taking you with me. what you can say to me when I'm dead. 
I won't want to talk about the war, so don't start. I won't say anything at all about politics. I've already had it up to here with gossip, and God is no good either as a conversational topic. I'll be finished, too, with gnawing on the dry bones of art, of accomplishment. You can put them into your own soup if you feel like it. I'll be lying down for a while. Just fill me in on what you've been up to. Um, Robert Huff was a, uh, um, a mentor to me in many ways, some of them by just leave it at that. He was a mentor. Uh, he, was my, he was my thesis uh, uh, advisor, signed off on my master's thesis at Western. And um, we spent quite a bit of time together. So this poem is for him. It's called, uh, it has an epigraph from one of his poems. Uh, the poem is called Napping by the Sea with Sally. And uh, the epigraph is uh, just a line and a half from the poem. I wake up in my dream. I'm wide awake, asleep on outer drive. Robert Huff. This is called After the Fire. I don't want to think of him waking up in a flaming chair, in a fiery shawl, howling. God, that man could roar. I can hear him still over whiskey, through his smoke, bellowing across my kitchen table. You think that's poetry? Then quoting Auden, how the old masters were never wrong, shoving me into the way that poem worked, stuffing his mouth with the salmon I had cooked, the beans I'd picked and snapped that afternoon. He could move with the sympathetic rhythms of birds, their migratory flights, their seasonal habits, winging it from wreck to wreck, one poem to another, one allusion to the next, playing his tricks of the mouth on the ear, playing paradox, waking in a dream, or wide awake, sleeping off something in his blood. The last time I saw him, I left him there for good. And when I heard of the dropped cigarette, the burning chair, his dying in the fire, I felt like a traitor. I took the news away to Innesheer, where miles of dry stone walls divide the island into tiny farm plots, tracing the contours of rock and rift and local economy. There I walked the boreens all day and never saw anyone farming. Still, everywhere I went, those walls, their curious order, even the weeds between them said someone had been there working, making sense. In Morocco, I had the, um, I wouldn't say it was a pleasure, maybe an honor, um, to, to witness a, uh, an Amasir, um, a Berber. The, the Berber people call themselves Amasir, um, uh, burial procession. 
and there was no coffin. People were this group of people were very. Uh, uh, they looked to be just dirt poor, and and but wearing the best clothes they had, which were like the rest of the clothes they had, only clean, you know, and uh, carrying this body on a plank out of town. It was just someone wrapped up, no no coffin or anything like that. And a little while later, I um, uh, we were in the Dra'a Valley in southern Morocco, southeastern Morocco, and it's there's a a river that flows through it, and along the river it's very much a, a uh, an oasis, and you don't have to go a hundred yards away from that, not even not even close, like maybe a hundred feet away from that, and it and it's uh, dry, just bone dry, and the, the the buildings in that part of the country are all uh, mud buildings. They're made from mud bricks that are made right there on the spot. So the the buildings themselves look like they've just been extruded from the ground, and they immediately start decaying back in. So this poem it's called Draa Valley Cemetery. Pounded flat by habit, a narrow path leaves a pile of houses pulled from the ground, brick on brick and crumbling back since the day they were made. Beyond the last wall, sharp stones mark the ends of graves as if to say, dry loss makes plain sorrow harder. Whatever grows there grows thorns, comes bent from the seed, endures because it must, because there is no real comfort in a coffin because there is no coffin at all, just someone wound in a shroud carried out from the town. Parched air hovers around the graves, and hoopos probe the dirt between stones, stop and hold, then flash black wing stripes, bright topknots into the green relief of the palmery across the road, its irrigated shade, new wheat, coming up beneath the trees. Whatever you thought you were made of was never meant to last. Okay, I'm going to skip over here to the the end run. This is the 70th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki this year. This has an epigraph from my 1959 Encyclopedia Britannica. Bet you don't have one of those. And it goes like this. Hiroshima is famous all over Japan for its association with the neighboring islet of Itakushima, Island of Light the boys. We dropped our little boy off and an island of light fell on the city. It flashed our enemies into light as well or turned them to ash or cooked and skinned them alive, left them trailing the ribbons of their faces as they ran panicked through their ruined streets. We'd given him our blessing and we'd let him fly or fall on his own. He was a huge success. So we sent his fat brother down right away to spread the same light in another place. Oh, those two boys had a promise so bright it blinded us. 
the Hiroshima Day sidewalk silhouettes. This could be anyone spread out here, flat as a map, a Rorschach blot, a thought gelling into a continent, white chalk. I think of how it powders your fingers, sucks the moisture out of your skin, the dry whisper it makes, thin squeal of nails, quick shiver telegraphed tooth to spine. This could be anyone flattened here, blasted down to shadow. So why am I drawn to look again each time I turn away? No matter what I know, somebody knows it better. Neutrons, electrons, the hot rods in the containment shell, geologic faults, cracked concrete, this chalk drawing on it, harmless as hopscotch now in the part of the world I walk around in. There used to be a painter in Tacoma named Ricker Windsor. He now lives in Indonesia. We still correspond, but this poem comes from one of his paintings. And he, we shared an exhibit when he was still living in Tacoma years ago. This is called These Others. The men in the river, the men who had been standing on the bank before they dove into the blue dream of history, all tried to save themselves, all scattered when the others attacked them, when the others covered them in a furious swarm of arrows. But no matter where they ran, these men on the bank of the river, they ran toward more arrows. And no matter how they swam, these men in the river, they had to come up for air. And when they opened their mouths, they opened their mouths to arrows. When the others were finished, they lowered their bows. When they finished, they had arrows to spare, each with its point hidden in the quiver, its fletched end ready as a winged idea. When they finished, they praised what they had done. They said it had to be, and then they sat down to eat, or they drank till they were drunk, or they found someone to fuck or they prayed they gave thanks to one God or another, these others with their arrows. And this is the last poem. Resolution. Afterward, the crows perching in the bare orchard rattled black vowels, broken consonants from their feathered bags as if they'd seen all there was to see had said so over and over, the old complaints, grown heavy, overripe, had dropped. New recruits stooped, picked them up. Eager to begin, optimistic as saints, they said surely the worst was over, but no, it would start again the same way for them. Let them be among the lucky. Let their dead give up their tongues. Let the last owl in the dry brown woods keep calling out the same hollow vowels all night long. Thank you for listening. Let's give a big hand for Joseph Green again. 
Come back next week.